Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As we continue through this book, I'm going to try to continue to give us reminders of what we've heard in the past and uh, how the book fits together. Because I'm going kind of slow, so I know it's easy to lose your focus. I know it's easy to lose track and get buried down into the one or two verses we may be studying or maybe the one word. Um, But we always have to remember the context of what Peter has written prior in the book. And so let's go back. Let's think about what we saw in some of the earlier verses already in this book. First, we are reminded by Peter that We are sons of God, that we have an imperishable inheritance. An inheritance, of course, is given only to the children, not to the slaves, right? An inheritance is given only to those who are actually sons. And so then he he moves from that reminder that's supposed to bring about great joy in us, that we're supposed to celebrate that, we're to rejoice in that, And he uses that to exhort us to persevere through trials, through temptations, all the way to the end, so that we will look forward to that day when we will receive that inheritance that is promised by God to his people. And as we persevere, he tells us our faith will be proved. And that it will bring about honor and glory for our Master, our Heavenly Father, and that it will result in praise and honor from Him to us. He's also told us, reminded us, that we have benefits that not even the prophets of old have. Now, I want you to think about that. Think about Moses as one of the prophets of old. Or you think about Elijah and Elisha, right? And you think about Elisha receiving the mantle of Elijah and the works that God did through these men. We've uh, been reading a couple of the short minor prophet books and family devotions and we finished, we, we read Habakkuk and started Nahum, going backwards there, but... Uh, And they're just three chapters each. They're really short, really easy reads. But wow, what God has done through his prophets. And yet, Peter says that the prophets wish that they could have had what we have. The prophets and even the angels long to look into this salvation that we have from God. And so, with all of that as the background, he's been just kind of returning over and over again to this theme of being holy. You know, persevere through trials and temptations means live a holy life. Don't give yourself over to the lusts of the flesh. Prepare your minds for action, meaning the action of living a holy life, right? 
But Peter knows that we have trouble being holy. Peter knows you. Peter knows me. And the reason that Peter knows us is because... Did you ever read about Peter in the, in the Gospels? Peter was a normal kind of man, wasn't he? He kind of made an idiot of himself sometimes. Have you ever done that? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. I've done that. Peter's about the most relatable man in a lot of ways. He knows that our intentions are great, right? We just have such high intentions for ourselves. I know that on that day, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus just, you know, shakes his head and says, Peter, Peter, you will die for me. But you're not ready to. (laughs) Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times strikes like a dagger into my heart. Peter knows that we have trouble maintaining these high, grand aspirations of, I'm done with this sin. I'm going to live a holy life now. I'm so sick of this. I'm done with it, right? Have you ever ever felt that way? Do you think Peter felt that way? Maybe the first time after Jesus rebuked the disciples for fighting over who was the greatest, probably Peter was like, I can't believe we were doing that. Never again, right? And then the next week, they were fighting over who was the greatest again, right? So Peter, Peter knows that we struggle. Peter knows that we will continue to struggle. This is why he keeps giving exhortations. We we're, only, we're only a little bit of the ways into this book, and he just keeps saying, you know, so be holy. And he keeps giving reasons. He keeps heaping up reasons to be holy that will be a help to us, that will be a motivation to us in holiness. And mostly what we've talked about so far are what I would call positive reasons. God will be glorified. Remember, there's this imperishable inheritance coming. You'll receive this this crown, this this inheritance, this this imperishable inheritance. It will will result in, in glory and honor and praise. He keeps giving positive things that we love to hear, that we like to be reminded of, but then he he also comes in with what I would call negative reinforcement. And that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. I think I've given you plenty of warning if you've been here the last few weeks that we're talking about God as judge this Sunday. that our Father is a judge. So let's read this now. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. 
Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, the nature of fatherhood, excuse me. The nature of fatherhood is displayed all through the Bible, but especially in texts like this one. What we have here on that positive side that I was speaking of earlier is the exhortation to holiness directly related to the fact that God is our Father. God is our Father. Because we have that imperishable inheritance, that inheritance that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be stolen, that cannot be taken away. So let's do works that are worthy of praise from Him. And we desire to be like our Father because that's what it is to have a Father. To have a Father is to desire to be like Him. And so, because of that that nature of what it means to have a Father, then He can say, Be holy as your Father is holy. Be like Him. He's holy. Be like Him. You want to be like Him. He's your Father. Be holy like Him. Right? And then He brings in this this negative motivation. You You know how it is that we... We do better with both positive and negative motivations together, right? On the one hand, there's the carrot, and on the other hand, there is the 
stick, right? Why do we speak of the carrot and the stick? Well, the carrot is the thing you want, believe it or not, kids. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the carrot, you like carrots, good. Okay, so you'll understand this. The carrot is the thing that you want. Now, if you've ever, uh, you may have seen a picture of this, maybe a cartoon or something like that. But you might have somebody riding on a donkey, and he'll have a carrot dangling off of a, a string hanging from the end of a stick, all right? And the carrot is right in front of the donkey, and donkeys like carrots, and so what, do they, what does the donkey do? Yeah. That's right, the, the donkey takes a step forward because he wants the carrot, right? So the carrot is that positive motivation. I want the carrot, so I'm going to step forward. I'm going to go the direction I'm supposed to go so I can get that reward, the carrot that I want to eat. But if that's not enough motivation, in your other hand, the rider has a stick. And what is, what is the stick for? Getting it to go, yes, but how? Whack, 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 that's right, Judah's got it. Smack the back of that donkey to give it motivation to go so it can go towards the carrot, because it wants the carrot, and it can try to get away from whatever's making it hurt back there. Right, that's the stick. Now, we also are helped by carrots and sticks, positive and negative motivations. We like receiving praise, right? And so when we do something good, it can be helpful to us to continue doing something good in the future to hear, well done, good job. Thank you for doing that. That's, that's motivating, isn't it? But also, we don't want to be ashamed because we didn't do what we said we would do. We don't want to hear somebody say to us, hey, didn't you say you were going to... You fill in the blank right there, right? Didn't you say you were going to... And you didn't do it. Why didn't you do it? We don't want to be ashamed like that. That's, the, that's that stick, the negative reinforcement, that negative motivation. We want to receive the good and we want to avoid the bad. And together, that's a powerful, motivating force for us to holiness, right? And that's what we have here in the text. We have, be like your Father in heaven. We, we already studied that. Be holy as I am holy. And now, we make it to that statement that he is a judge. Now, a judge is a negative motivation, just the word judge we really don't like, right? We don't like judges because judges make distinctions, judges make divisions, judges say this was good, and judges also say this was bad. And it doesn't matter what context you think of a judge in, <clears throat> if you think about being 
judged in the 4-H competition, you know that some people are going to get ribbons and other people are going to get nothing. Right? That's what a judge does. A judge says, this one is the best, this one is the second best, this one is the third best, and all the rest of y'all lose. Well, you might get a participation prize today, right? But we can't lie to ourselves and ignore what judging means. Judging is dividing between the good and the bad. So here it says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges. And remember, his, his goal, Peter's goal here is to help us be motivated to living a holy life. And so he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, if it wasn't bad enough that God judges, he adds on this word, fear. If there's anything that can cause confusion today, the idea of fearing God in the evangelical church is something that will bring about great confusion, right? Now, I don't say this to shame you, because it is a little bit of a tough concept. After all, don't we also read that perfect love casts out fear, right? Okay, so here we have Peter saying, Conduct yourselves in fear, remembering that God is a judge and that you call him father. And that fact that we call him father plays into this. Okay? We're going to return to that in a second. But fear. Conduct yourselves in fear. How do we make that jive with perfect love casts out fear? Or maybe even a better question is, how do we make that jive? How do we make that make sense with the fact that he has been trying to force us to remember, make sure we remember, make sure we can't forget that this, in, this inheritance is imperishable. If the inheritance is imperishable, what do we have to fear? Right? We're going to get it. The inheritance is ours. There's no doubt about it. We have nothing to fear. It's imperishable. Okay, so, we've got several things in front of us now, right? We've got the confusing nature of what does it mean that we're called to live with fear right now? How is that not the Bible contradicting itself? How is that not just Peter contradicting himself within the first 20 verses of the book. We also have the fact that there's both the positive and the negative being brought together here in this book. <clears throat> and we've got to remember through it all that Peter's goal is to continue to motivate us forward to holy living. That's what those positive and negative 
motivations are for to living a holy life. Okay, so those are the things before us. Now, I said it matters that we call this impartial judge father, right? So let's, let's turn to that first. Why does it matter that we call our judge father? I want you to imagine for a second that your earthly father was a judge. Let's let's make it in a courtroom this time as opposed to uh, at the state fair. Okay. In the courtroom, your father is a judge. And you end up standing in front of him. Now, if you end up standing in front of your father, being judged by your earthly father in a courtroom, first of all, it's pretty important to note that he's impartial, isn't it? (laughs) It's pretty important that he be impartial because you want justice to be done by a judge, right? You don't want... You don't want there to be any special favoritism to the children of the judge. You don't want there to be injustice done at the court of law. You want there to be justice done. But if you're standing in front of him and you're his son, what do you want more than anything else? You want to not be guilty. Not to be found not guilty. You want to be not guilty, right? So that you can look your father in the eyes and say, I didn't do it. And he will not have to be ashamed of you on that day. He will not have to look on you and say, guilty. Which would bring Great shame onto his family name, wouldn't it? Can you imagine being the judge in a small town where everybody knows everybody, and here the son of the judge is a scofflaw. You know what a scofflaw is, kids? No? Who knows what a scofflaw is? We've got to tell the kids what a scofflaw is. You got it, Liam? That's right. Nailed it. Just from what the word sounds like, it sounds like someone who scoffs at the law, right? That's right. A scofflaw is somebody who doesn't care what the law says and just does whatever they want. Remember we were speaking a few weeks ago about the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance? Well, that's what a scofflaw gives themselves to all day long. A scofflaw. So now imagine, small town, the one judge, 
He's faithfully judged the people of that town for decades, serving a thankless job, but one that he has fulfilled honorably. And his son grows up to speed and steal and cheat and lie and steal and cheat some more. And he keeps ending up before his father, the judge. And every time, the father's heart dies a little bit more. Right? Isn't that what would happen? Every time, the father's good name that he has protected, that he has made holy through his careful observance and defense of the law, right? Now, his son is besmirching his name, dragging it through the dirt and the mud and the filth. And so now no longer is the name Jones, let's say. No longer is the name Jones in small town USA known for upholding of the law, but now Jones is known for being a lying, cheating, stealing, no good, son of a gun. All right, now, do you call the judge father? Is he your father? Then don't you want to live in a way that will bring praise and honor and glory to his name? We want to, don't we? But it goes beyond that. Imagine calling him father, calling the judge father, the impartial judge, the one who will judge according to all of your work. Imagine calling that judge father, but living a hypocritical life. Living a hypocritical life. Where you want, you haven't just thrown off his good name, you're trying to keep his good name, but you're also trying to hide all the nasty stuff that you're doing and pretend like you're still a good, upstanding citizen. Now, you might keep that up for years, right? You might fool people for quite some time. But one day, you'll stand before that judge. He's an impartial judge. The Jews were warned over and over again that not all Israel is Israel. What does that mean? Not all Israel those who claim that God is their Heavenly Father, have Him as their Heavenly Father. Not all those who 
are sons of God, are truly sons of God, right? And so if you call God Father, you better make sure He's your Father. This is why we are to fear. Not because the inheritance is perishable. Not because there's any doubt about whether there is an inheritance for the sons of God. But because we must not be presumptuous. Now what does it mean to be presumptuous? Another hard one. Do you know what it means to be presumptuous? Can you figure out the root word there? To presume. Presume. Now, have you ever heard that word before? Maybe the only time thing, quote I can think of is Dr. Livingston, I presume. Isn't that right? Is that quote? No, that doesn't help you, does it? No. <laughs> Getting blank looks from the kids. When you presume, it means you think you know, but you don't necessarily know what you're talking about. Now, if we are presumptuous towards God our Father, then that means that we are confident that we have nothing to be afraid of because God is our Father, and so it doesn't matter what we do because we got the stamp. We got the approval. He's the judge. He's our Father, so we know what's coming. He's going to give us the not guilty verdict, right? Now, Can you be confident that you will receive the not guilty verdict from God, the Heavenly Father? Your Heavenly Father. Yes, and you must be sure. That's what Peter's trying to remind us of, right? This inheritance is imperishable. And so you have nothing to fear unless unless you're calling him Father, but he's not your Father. You see, unless you are presuming upon him and not walking by faith, not living a life of repentance. Now let's take the let's take the story of the prodigal son. And let's let's continue the story for for a little while, okay? You guys know how the story of the prodigal son? There's two sons, and the the younger son says, Give me my inheritance now, Dad. I wish you were already dead. Just give me what's mine. The father gives him his inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders it, and when he's wasted all of it, he finally realizes what a fool he's been, and he returns in shame, in repentance, to his father and says, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant in your house, please. I'm better off being a slave 
not even getting the inheritance. I, I'm better off, though, being a slave in your house. And what does the father do? The father receives him with wide open arms, with rejoicing, with the ring, a robe, a feast. The fattened calf is slaughtered so they can have a huge party because the son has returned, right? And the older son is bitter. The older son says, how come you're having a big party for him? You've never had a big party for me. I've been here working faithfully this whole time. Now, let's continue the story. So, there's two things that you can learn from that. The older son could learn to love his father more, or he could decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to learn that I can do whatever I want. Father, you give me my inheritance now. I would like you to be dead. I would like to receive my inheritance now. And he goes and he does the same thing as his younger brother. That would be the wrong lesson to learn, right? But he does. He goes off. And he decides he's going to live it up now because he's jealous that his younger brother got to live it up. So he goes off and He says, well, now I'm out of money. I've used it all up on prostitutes and shameless pleasure and the lusts of the flesh. I guess I'll go home now. Hello, Father. I'm back. Now comes the part where you put a robe on me, give me a ring and a big feast to celebrate my return. Do you think the Father is going to respond with the big feast and the ring and the robe? No, he's not, is he? Why would the father respond so differently to a son who did the same thing? Two different sons do the same thing and get totally different responses from the father. That's a trick question. They didn't do the same thing, did they? They didn't do the same thing. It's like a movie where the... uh, the bad guy decides that he wants the rewards that come from being a prince, right? So he's like, all right, now I'm going to uh, go kiss the princess and uh, we're going to get married and we're all going to live happily ever after. And so he walks up to the princess and he kisses the princess and she smacks him in the face. What gives? I just did the same thing. You're supposed to, this is how the story's supposed to go. You're not the prince. You're not the one who loved me. You're not the one who rescued me. You're not the one that I fell in love with. It's not going to end the same, right? And the father says to the second, the wannabe prodigal son, but you're not the prodigal son. You didn't humble yourself. You didn't return on your knees. You didn't repent. You were presumptuous, and you returned as though you owned the place, but you don't. I am judging impartially. I am a judge that looks into the hearts 
of men. He impartially judges according to each one's work. He looks into our hearts. To quote another book, let not that son think he will receive anything from the Father except judgment. Right? This is, this is the son that is double-minded. This is the son that is unstable in all his ways. He can't make up his mind whether he wants to obey the Father or whether he just wants to live it up. So, should the sons fear the Father? Should the sons fear the Father? Yes. The sons should fear the Father. Because he has a strong right hand. And in that right hand, he has a rod. Children, have you ever had your father strike you with the rod? Have you ever gotten a spanking from your father? It is something to fear, isn't it? It makes you learn obedience. Why? Why? Because it is a negative reinforcement. Right? It's a negative reinforcement to holy living, to obedience. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. That fear... That fear leads you to utter confidence in his presence before him as he judges that he will find you not guilty. It is precisely the reason that we are able to love our Father because He has loved us. Right? You think, I thought you were talking about discipline. I am talking about His discipline. Is that not Him loving us? That's what, that's what the Bible says. It is His love for His children that He disciplines us. And so we love him because he first disciplined us. We love because he first loved us. You guys see how important it is that if he's our father, if we call the judge father, that we live with him as our father, which means we have fear. 
we fear Him as children fear their Father and obey Him. Did the prodigal son's obedience get him that reward? That imperishable inheritance? It didn't, did it? It wasn't his obedience that got him the inheritance. The inheritance is for the children. What got him the inheritance was his confession that he did not deserve the inheritance. What got him the inheritance was him casting himself on the mercy of his father. Knowing that his father is an impartial judge. He repented of his lack of fear and had nothing to fear ever again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do call you Father. We come into your presence by the blood of Jesus Christ, our older brother, the one who has established us in the faith, the one who has made the inheritance for us. And we come by faith without any fear. And Father, we claim that inheritance as our own. We claim your love, not because we deserve it, but because you have promised it to all those who believe. And Father, as we go out from here now, we pray that we would live lives of obedience, fearing your hand of discipline. Father, we thank you that you did not let the prodigal son just live without there being any consequences for his sin, but that your discipline brought him to the end of himself. Father, if we do not have faith, we know there is no forgiveness for us. And so, Father, we pray that those who do not have faith, even in this body, Father, that you would bring them to the end of themselves. And that soon, Father, that by your loving hand of discipline, you may bring many sons to glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.